Well, hey, welcome back to our final message in the series, The Meaning of Intimacy. And Dale, this has been just a great series. We've had so many people who have written in questions and comments and just wanted to talk more and more about, uh, about this topic. And uh, so we're taking some time for you to answer all these questions that have come in. And uh, I just want to start by saying thank you for dealing with this topic. I know it's one, uh, the Song of Solomon is a book that is not often spoken on, it's not often uh, taught on. And uh, you're going to follow up that series with uh, the book of Revelation. Yeah, so. much, much easier. <laughs> Starts next weekend. Yeah, what's the saying? Out of the frying pan into the fire there or something? So, yeah, yeah, so to speak. Uh, but, um, but this has just been, been great. number of questions have come in, so I think we'll just start right at the top. And one of the questions deals with Solomon himself. So this has been, uh, as, you, as you've really walked us through the book, there's been this, this description about how Solomon and the Shulamite have this, really this God-honoring relationship. And yet, we know the rest of the story about Solomon. And so people have been writing in and saying, wait a minute, this guy seemed like he couldn't control himself. He had so many wives, he had all these concubines. So how do you reconcile the Song of Solomon with how Solomon lived part of his life? Yeah, and you know, many of the Bible characters are not the greatest examples for us to, to follow when we look at their lives. And the question becomes, do you just ignore them? And then the answer is, well, if that's the case, then why did God inspire those books to be put in, in the Bible itself? So let's take a, a little bit of a look at Solomon's life uh, to begin with. And um, when you look at his life, you, you understand he really went afar uh, in terms of his relationship with God. One of the passages in 1 Kings 11, verse 3, says that he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. So many of these relationships were politically oriented. So the fact that he has 700 wives has a lot to do with treaties and trade and economy, etc. Concubines had a lesser status than a wife did. And they were basically there for show. Uh, they were there in case you you know, uh, couldn't have a child with a wife, then you could you know, use your concubine. In his case, he had plenty of wives to uh, make choices with. Um, and as well, um, they, were, they were there for the king or someone who was wealthy enough to have concubines to, you know, to have a, a physical sexual relationship with when they, when they chose. And uh, God originally had warned uh, that this was going to happen. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, uh, chapter 17, God tells the Israelites, you, you really don't want the king. Because if you have a king, here's what's going to happen. First, he's going to multiply his wealth. How does a king do that? By imposing taxes. We all know about that, right? And then secondly, he'll amass horses. What's that all about? Trusting his own strength, you know, his military might. And then, he's, and then it's, uh, God said, then he'll amass wives. Don't do that. But every king disobeyed God. And what we unfortunately learn is that these women in Solomon's life, because many of them were pagans, drew him away from God. But it wasn't always that case. We know from 1 Kings chapter 3, for instance, that when Solomon first started out, he was very humble. And he sought one thing from God, and that was wisdom. He basically said to God, I'm in over my head. I need your help. And God blessed him, became one of the wisest men who ever lived. However, it's one thing to preach a sermon. It's another thing to practice that sermon. It's one thing to say this is the truth. It's another thing to live out that truth in your life. And he didn't. So when you get to 1 Kings chapter 11, God says to him, 
I'm ripping the kingdom out from you. I'm taking it away from you. I'm going to honor your dad because of uh, the fact that, you know, he did follow me. Even though David blew it, he repented and followed me. But enough. I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this from your son. So Rehoboam comes along. You have the civil war, the splitting of the northern and the southern kingdoms. It's a great big mess. Horrible consequences uh, because of his sin and his rebellion uh, against God worshiping these false gods along with Yahweh, trying to honor his wives and their wishes as well as trying to please God. It was just a, it was a bad scene all the way around. So it's interesting, <clears throat> when Solomon comes full circle at the end of his life, he writes this book called Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And it's kind of him as an older man now looking back. And in chapter two, he says, one thing I've learned is that trying to do life on your own is like chasing the wind. It just doesn't work. I've tried everything. I've tried everything. And then in chapter 12, verse 13, here's his summation. He says in that passage of Scripture, that's the whole story. <clears throat> Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Fear God and obey his commands. God will judge us for everything we do. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> including every secret thing whether good or bad. Now, um, you read a, a passage of scripture like that and his wisdom is well worth remembering. Fear God and obey his commands. That's what life's really all about. You've got two things I need to do in every aspect. Fear God and obey his commands. So should we just say, okay, because Solomon was a bad example at the end of his life that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't read what he has to say? We shouldn't look at the Song of Solomon as a book to help us understand intimacy and marriage and singlehood. Well, if we're going to do that, then let's get rid of the Proverbs he wrote, right? Let's get rid of the Psalms David wrote, because David, his dad, was, was a bad guy. I mean, he ended up committing adultery and having the husband of the woman murdered. Um, let's forget about Abraham. He had problems with lying. So did his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. How about Paul in the New Testament? I mean, there's a guy that was arresting, persecuting Christians and, and having them killed. Yes, he got converted, but look at all the terrible things he did, right? And yet God calls him to be one of the greatest apostles. Right. How would you like your life displayed over a book? Every secret thought, every sin you ever committed laid in front of everybody, right? Yeah. Maybe you should be glad we didn't live in biblical times. What if it was your story being told? So here's the deal. Learn from the good things, the right things he said and did, and then learn from the wrong things, the bad things, so we don't repeat it as, as well. Yeah. And, and I think that there's such beauty in the scripture that God doesn't shy away from the cautionary tale, the cautionary aspects of what happens when we don't follow him. Right. And that just gives me you know, more confidence in scripture that this is real. And these are real people that right. really you know, had uh, these great moments, but also these, you know, these challenges. Right. So that leads to another question. And this was one of the more popular questions we had. Dale, how come we don't see more examples of healthy marriage in the Bible? It seems often when we look at some of these stories, the examples of marriages aren't strong and they're not always God-honoring. Yeah. You know, I have a couple of responses to that. Um, one is, it's amazing there are any good stories in the Bible. <laughs> any good marriages, any good people, right? Because of, of how they, um, uh, because of sinfulness. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, our hearts are so desperately wicked, and, this, and, and the older I get, the more I believe this, we don't even know how wicked our hearts are. We don't even know the depths of depravity that, are, that, we're, that we're capable of. We certainly see it in the world. Maybe we sense it in our own lives sometimes. 
And then the other thought that comes to my mind is, you know, those, how many of you are married? All right? What if, what if a snapshot was taken of your marriage on a bad day and that was put into print? Then what would everybody think about you, right? You know, and, and well, look at this, horrible. You know, look how he acted. Look how he treated her. Look at what she said, right? And this is the whole story. So, you know, we, we kind of have to uh, appreciate the fact that, you know, the Bible, as it's written there and as, it, as it's put out there for us, is is really a book describing the drama of redemption, how God goes about rescuing us and bringing us back into right relationship with himself, and how God uses broken, sinful people along the way to do that. I mean, it's a miracle that we're here today, but it's an act of God's grace, how in spite of our sinfulness and our brokenness, he still accomplishes his will because God loves us and God cares for us. And the truth of the matter is, while there are, yes, a lot of bad examples in the Bible, there are also some pretty good examples in the Bible, marriage-wise. Ruth, Boaz, Joseph, Mary, and then, you know, the disciples, and then many people we don't even know about. It's kind of like what Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. There are a lot of good marriages. 60% of married folks say they're happy. Yeah. And statistics show for those who are unhappy, if they'll work at it, Within five years, their marriages will improve. So when you hear the statistic, 50% of all marriages end in divorce, 50% of what marriages? Keller says the marriages of those who get married 18 years of age or younger, all right, who have a child out of wedlock and who don't finish high school. But see how that all gets kind of morphed to where we have this sense that marriages are bad, marriages are in trouble. Marriages go through difficult periods, no doubt about that. But marriages in general, all right, 60% are saying, hey, we're happily married here and, and we're working things out. So I think we gotta, we gotta keep our, our, uh, our focus right on those kinds of things and not think that it's all gloom and doom and everything's bad news. God, you know, God's doing some good things. Yeah, and scripture isn't silent on the topic of marriage, right. especially in the New Testament. Paul gives a lot of writing about how we're supposed to behave right. in relationships right. and marriage in particular. Yep. And many of the examples that things don't work out well, it's because they, they didn't do it God's way. Right. So that leads to another question. And this, we had so many comments that came in and I actually had several conversations with some people about this topic throughout our series. Uh, in a message a couple weeks ago, you talked about not living together before marriage. And many people pushing on the idea, you know, stories of saying, listen, you need to understand my situation. We're doing it for finances. You know, we're in debt. There's just no way to make this work. Uh, other folks said, listen, people, if they love each other and they're committed to one another, who cares? What's the big deal? And still others said, well, listen, you know, here's so-and-so, and they lived together before they got married. They've been married X number of years. Everybody's happy and healthy. So what's, what's the big deal? So right. what do you say about that? Okay, so uh, cohabitation, what does it mean? It means two adults, a, young, you know, a man and a woman living together, and, uh, uh, but not married uh, in the sense that we think of. There's no ceremony. They don't call each other husband and wife, but they have sexual relations with one another. When I was um, younger, which always seems weird for me to say that, all right? But when I was younger, uh, you never heard people talking about so-and-so cohabitating. They would say, hey, they're shacking up, all right? Mm. And, or they're living in sin. So cohabitation sounds much better, right? It's, it's just much better than saying, hey, I'm shacked up. Right, I'm cohabitating, all right? Doesn't change the situation. Giving it a different name doesn't make it better necessarily or right necessarily. Now, statistics tell us that 
two-thirds, according to a, uh, a study done in 2012, two-thirds of couples will live together for about two years before they get married. Now, in the last century and a half, the percentage of people living together has risen 1,500%. A USA Today article came out a while back and said, you know, if you believe that, that it's wrong to live together, you are in a minority opinion. Well, I expect that from the world. What I don't expect and what concerns me probably more than anything else are the number of uh, people who claim to be followers of Christ. I'm not doubting that they're followers, but they, they say they're followers of Christ who believe that it's okay to cohabitate together, that, there's, that it's all right, and there's nothing wrong with it, you really love each other, why go through marriage, why, you know, why is that necessary, we choose to live this way. That, that concerns me, that disturbs me. And I came across a statement uh, written by an individual, and they were writing on a different topic of sexuality, but I thought the statement was so powerful. And here's what they said. They said, the good in something doesn't make it right in God's sight. Let me say it again. The good in something doesn't make it right in God's sight. So you and I get together every week, have a breakfast meeting, and you like eggs. I don't, but that doesn't matter. You like eggs. And imagine, Kyle, I say, I'm going to make breakfast for you. And I, I crack open four rotten eggs. Like I have to hold a clothespin on my nose. It's so bad, right? But then I grab a good egg, and I put the good egg in there and mix it up. Do you want to eat that? No, I don't. All right? There's a good egg, though, yeah. right? But it doesn't make the omelet necessarily right. right. This okay? is why we go out for breakfast. That's why we go out and, for uh, breakfast, right? Yeah. All right? So, so the point is, there are good things in living together, in cohabitating, whatever you want to call it, in same-sex relationships. There's the, the goodness of care. There's the goodness of compassion. There's the goodness of, of if you want to call it love. There's the, there's the goodness uh, in terms of financially, you know, saving money or whatever it is. There, right. there are good things in it, all right, but it doesn't make it right. Hmm. So you can change the rules in your mind or as a society. It doesn't mean that in God's mind the rule has changed. Hmm. In other words, I could say this used to be truth. We're going to vote and make this the truth now. It doesn't mean that God said, okay, majority voted, I vote with you. God still stands on his truth. He's not changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he said is eternal. God's not confused. What God said, he said for a reason. So what it comes down to is, though I may disagree with God, though I may have strong feelings one way or another in some issue or some area, though all my friends may do it, though culture may vote it into law, though I may feel powerfully and, and strong about something, doesn't make it right. No matter how good it feels, doesn't make it right. What matters is honoring God. Yeah. And sometimes when you seek to honor God, you will go against the majority opinion. Read the Bible. <laughs> Look at Israel. Right. Majority are not always right. In fact, oftentimes the majority are wrong. What does God say? And it's, you know, going back to what Solomon said, what did he learn at the end of his life, having been the playboy that he was? Honor God, obey his word. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Don't do it judgmentally. Don't do it angrily, but honor God and obey his word. If we could just do that.
right, and stop listening to our emotions and stop listening to the culture and just gently, graciously, quietly honor God by keeping his word and fearing his name. And there's a faith component to this as well, right? I mean, yep. you know, it, it's the, the concept that God knows best, that God has my best at, at heart, and when I'm following <laughs> after him, that, you know, I'm, I'm seeking his best. Otherwise, we're essentially telling God, listen, we know better than you right. do. And there's, a, there's certainly an element of faith. Um, yeah. in, in and, and there's a convenience, Cal, with that, and we've talked about it before, of having a view that God is distant and far away, yeah, right. right? Which means... You know, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with Jesus, but they're not uncomfortable with a God who's out there. Because if God is far away, that means I have a lot of playroom to decide what's what's right. And it's kind of being left up to me then to kind of figure it out. But, you know, when God reveals himself in his word and in Jesus, the the yard just shrunk. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay, so let me press on this a little bit more then. So based on how you responded to the idea of living together, cohabitation, what does it really mean then to actually be married? Isn't this just a piece of paper? Yeah. So let's, let's take a little bit of context. I think, I think one of the problems is that people view marriage as a human invention. And that's how it's oftentimes portrayed, certainly by the secular world. That marriage was pragmatic, it was economical, in agrarian culture you needed to have kids, there was no birth control. The more kids you had, the more crops you could plant, the more animals you could keep but we're all past that now. We're in the age of modernity and we don't need that. And marriage is really portrayed in our culture as kind of irrelevant today. Not really necessary given that perspective. Now, if that's true, if it's just a human invention, then okay, change it if you want. But it's not, it's, it's ordained by God. Think about the words of Jesus over here in Matthew chapter 19, verse eight. It's in the context of divorce, but listen to what he says. He says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. Or another version says, it was not so in the beginning. So that indicates that in the very beginning, God had the sense of a marriage being something that was united between two people. And the context is Genesis. So let me read to you from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says, God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Remember, God created them out of the, Adam out of the dust of the ground, took the rib out and created the woman. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make, him, I'll make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Let's see if you can remember the message. The man said, wow. Eh, it's all right. (laughs) Not much passion there. The man said, men, wow. Better, all right. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now listen, verse 24 is key. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. United one flesh. The word in the Hebrew there, united, means glue. Stuck. Permanent glue. Together. For a lifetime. God didn't create Adams and Eves. Okay? He created one man, one woman to set the example, to set the model. This is my expectation that you will cleave to each other. Remember, marriage is a picture of God, all right? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one, in essence, three distinct personalities. 
Marriage is the closest you can get, all right? One, not just, not just physically, uh, but also spiritually, and yet two distinct personalities. So don't mess with marriage. God means more about marriage than what, <clears throat> excuse me, than what we often take it to be sure. uh, in, in that sense. So, Dale, let me kind of pin you down then on a definition of well, I used marriage. to be a wrestler, so <laughs> don't try to pin me. <laughs> let me try to push you on a definition. So how, how would you define marriage then? So uh, Tim Keller, I used his definition uh, in Meaning of Marriage. Based on scripture, uh, Tim said that marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and woman, a husband and wife. But I've also uh, been reading a little bit, um, a research professor, a uh, theological research professor, he's, he's German, his name is Dr. Andreas um, Kostenberger. And I like his definition. He says, marriage is a lifelong covenant so now, now he's saying, hey, remember, this is, a, this is a special promise that you make to each other, not just to each other, but with God. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God, and listen to this, and before community. So we live in the Western world where everything is individualized. But the Bible is very community-oriented. The church is very community-oriented. That's how God always intended it to be. So marriage is not just about me and my wife or my husband if I'm a woman. Marriage is about me, my spouse, God, and the community around this. That covenant's being made. The community witnesses that covenant. In the ancient times, it was the elders at the gate of the city, right, who would ratify various covenants. They had all kinds of weird ways of doing it that we wouldn't do today, all right? But all kinds of ways. And it's interesting, even pagan cultures, have marriage ceremonies, right, with their deities or however they bless it and always witnessed by a community. So, you know, that's kind of this, this expectation of marriage. And that keeps in with Jesus' words who, again, going back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, united in bond together. And other scriptures say when you divorce, you're tearing things apart. You're ripping the covenant. You're ripping the contract. And, you know, I may be ripping it with my spouse, but God's saying, you're ripping it with me as well. And so God's very prescriptive. He hates divorce, and he says, here are the very limited ways that it can happen, that it can take place um, in, in a relationship. So this covenant, this idea of covenant is huge. Now, you know, some people say, well, you have to have a piece of paper to get married. So envision two people on an island, right? They've been stranded, shipwrecked. And, and they've waited. Nobody's coming. Nobody's coming. They fall in love with each other. They say, oh, I wish we could be married, but there's no, you know, there's no court, there's no pastor. I think they could stand under the sky, before the stars, whatever they want to do, hold hands, and in prayer commit their lives to God and to each other and ask God to bless them as husband and wife. But when the rescue ship comes, they got to tell everybody in the rescue ship, hey, we got married under the stars before God. It's my wife, that's my husband, and uh, we want everybody to know that. And uh, sure, now that we're here, give us a little piece of paper. But it's really ultimately about what God says, not yeah. what man says. So I'm hearing kind of two different things are happening then in, in a marriage ceremony. There's a legal transaction that may or may not take place that, that the government oversees. But the more important thing is the covenant that's right. happening in view of God. Right. And that's, that's ultimately yep. what drives this. All right. Number of <laughs> questions that came in around this topic. So let me just kind of group them all together in this one question and yep. just, uh, just ask it directly. Okay. Is it wrong to have sex outside of marriage? Right. Before I ask that, let's, let's take a little 
historical overview here. And, and this comes from a rabbi um, who leans toward the orthodox side of things. Um, he's written on sexuality. It's, it's a powerful piece. He says, he says, you know, in the, in the beginning, as we've already discussed, it was a, a man and a woman, husband and wife. That's how God intended it to be. But, and by the way, he's not, a, he's not a Christian. He's not a follower of Christ. A respectful of Christ, but, but not a follower. Then he said, Genesis 3 happened, what we call the fall, all right? He said, ever since Genesis chapter 3, sexual, sexuality has overtaken man's mind and behavior. It has permeated every aspect of mankind's life. So that even after that, even religion and religion's gods became sexualized. Just go back, read your Old Testament, and look at the pagan religions, right? And even Israel tries to sexualize Yahweh. Everything becomes perverted. It's like the thing that's on the mind of men the most. And he says, look at history, okay? And the blame really lays at the feet of men, men in particular. And he goes on, it's very graphic, and he just talks about how how we can be worse than animals as men in our sexuality, anywhere, anytime, with whomever. It becomes about the penetrator and the penetrator. There's no love in it. And so he says throughout history, you know, it's been rampant. Women have oftentimes been victimized by it, and, and, and men have dominated with that sense. And uh, he said it's been perverted in every way imaginable. So he says it's just been going on for a really long time. He said, it is God who, when he gives the Torah, when he gives the law to Moses, and then a thousand years later with Christianity, it is God who takes, as he says, and puts the sex genie back in the bottle and says, look, sexuality must be experienced in these parameters of marriage, husband and wife, end of discussion. He says, if it wasn't for that, there'd be no Western society today. We would have literally destroyed ourselves, sexually speaking. So he says this, and I think he's right. He says, he says, so in essence, the word of God, right? Whether it's the Torah or as we take it, the 66 books of the Bible, the word of God is what is deviant when it comes to sexuality. That it's been, it's been wrong ever since Genesis 3. In the ancient times, anything went. There was no, no descriptions. It's just whatever you wanted to do. We're the ones that have said, no, it's wrong. This is the way it's supposed to be done. And of course, the more influence we have, the less you see of it in culture. But the less influence we have, what happens? The tide just comes back in the way it always has. Now, with that said, let me go to a passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians. It'll help answer our question. Paul's writing, it says, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. Pleases God, not the culture, not your parents, not your kids. Pleases God. As we have taught you, you live this way already. And we encourage you to do so even more, for you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, hey guys, remember this isn't my opinion, this is what God says. God's will is for you to be holy. That word means set apart. Set apart from what? Let's stop there for a moment. In the ancient world, uh, and this was to varying degrees, you had, if you're a man, you had a wife, her job was to bury your children and keep the house. You had a mistress for sex and also as your intellectual equal to go out in society with. You had what's called a palakis, and a palakis was basically a woman available for sex anytime you wanted it. And then besides that, you could also visit prostitutes at the temple. So it was kind of a free-for-all if you're a male. What a lot of people don't understand is how the Bible, all right, how Jesus, how authentic, and I say that, authentic Christianity gives women dignity. 
The way the world takes dignity away. Now, I understand Christians and others abuse that, and that's horrible, right? We're going to talk about that toward the end. But the reality is when authentic Christianity is practiced, it gives dignity back to women. It gives them position, and it it deals with a lot of the cultural issues we're dealing with today. So he says, God's will is for you to be holy, set apart from that. These guys used to live that way. That's the world they're coming out of. He says, you're to be holy, set apart, so stay away from pornea, that's the Greek word for sexual sin, which is a word that describes all, all sexual behavior outside of marriage between husband and wife. So it's not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching. Can we focus on that for a moment? Anybody who doesn't follow these rules isn't, isn't disobeying the church, isn't disobeying the pastor, isn't, isn't disobeying a Christian philosophy. He says, you're not disobeying human teaching, you're rejecting God. You're not honoring God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you? Remember, these are, this is not being written to the secular world, it's being written to believers. The Spirit lives in you. Be careful where you go, what you do with your body now. You've been saved out of this mess. So yes, sex outside of marriage is wrong. So I want to go back to verse 6 where Paul says God avenges all such sin. What what does he mean by that? I think think two things. One, I think it means that, you know, another verse in the Bible says God chastises those whom he loves. So if you're a true follower and you misbehave, God's going to get your attention, all right? Uh, and then just the course of sexual sin is going to eventually catch up to you, all right? But then secondly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, for we must all, he's talking to believers, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, this isn't about your eternal judgment, about heaven or hell. That's decided by Christ. He died for our sins. I received Christ. I know I'm going to go to heaven for eternity. But every believer will stand before Christ, will be judged based on how you then lived your life for Christ. And there are rewards involved. So I take it that, you know, if it's in the case of rebellion against God without repentance, your rewards diminish. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, chapter 3, it's like some are going to get into heaven like they're kind of running out of a burning house. You know, the smoke is on there, but you're not on fire. Yeah. Make it, as it says, by the skin of your teeth. Some people put it that way. Yeah. Um, by grace, but nothing to show for, sure. which really humbles me and causes me to seek God every day and say, God, I want to I live right before you yeah. by, by being obedient to you. Yeah, I mean, Scripture is so clear that God yeah. takes this very seriously. Right. Um, so, Dale, for someone who's here or is, is listening to this message online or, or um, yeah. on, on a, a podcast or something later, what do you say to the person who's just been convicted that they've been living outside the boundaries yeah. of, what, of what God has ask them to do. I think the same thing God says to all of us, no matter what our sin issue might be, and that is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of our God. And that was written to believers. So, you know, if my children disobey me, they don't stop being my children. It creates tension in our relationship. What heals it is when they say I'm sorry, right? And if they don't say they're sorry, then I have to discipline them until they do. So I think the same thing is true with God. No matter what our sin issue is, God forgives us. I think what a lot of people fail to realize is that when it comes to sexual sin, especially sexual addiction, it is actually a chemical issue. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, you know, 
pornography, etc., causes certain chemicals to be released in the brain. You become addicted to that high. Mm -hmm. And like other kinds of drugs, it requires more and more. So we have programs available if people want to confidentially email one of the pastors that we can link them into that are are Bible-based, Christian-based, to help overcome some of those challenges in their lives. That's good. That's right. Uh, Okay, two more. Um, uh, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, How long does it take (laughs) to find out if I'm happily married? Well, Kyle, let's talk about that later, (laughs) all right? Uh, You know, so the way I respond to that, I'll be really quick, is is happiness is oftentimes based on our happenings. Happiness, it kind of plays in line with that phrase I used earlier in the series, the me marriage. That's kind of what it's about today, the me marriage. If, If... Happiness depends on what my spouse does for me. I'm going to live on a roller coaster, mm. right? Because we are imperfect human beings. We are, we, we are not, um, we're not always consistent. Mm. And every marriage, I don't care how good it is, goes through its lulls, goes through its hard times. Yeah. I'd rather talk about love than happiness. Mm. Because if you really love each other, happiness will come. And, and love is not a feeling. Love's an act of the will. And what gives me the capacity to love my spouse when my spouse is behaving in a way that makes me, in my emotions, unhappy, is I understand that God's love is unconditional toward me. Mm-hmm. And if God unconditionally loves me, and I know I can make him unhappy by the way I act, but if God chooses to love me, I can do that for my spouse. It's a gift to them. So what makes a marriage happier, right, is when I choose to love my spouse even when they're misbehaving. Even when they're not acting in a way that's Christ-like, my job to be Christ-like. That's what makes a marriage strong. And we, you know, that's a longer topic, but we're running out of time. Yeah, but that's so key. Uh, okay, final question. Um, for the last three years, we at Wooddale have been a host site for something called the Global Leadership Summit. Two-day gathering, leaders, uh, some of the, the best leadership speakers come together um, and, uh, and share on the topic of leadership. A church, Willow Creek in Chicago, hosted this. Their senior pastor has been in the news recently, yeah. and uh, we have made a decision. You and I have been talking a lot about this, and, and we just we feel that we need to hit pause on being a host site for the Global Leadership Summit right. this year. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on yeah, that Yeah, just, just a little bit, and it's been in the news, so it's not like it's a secret. Um, and if you're in Chicagoland, you hear a lot more about it. But, um, you know, there's been quite a long line of women who have uh, accused uh, Pastor Bill Hybels of in, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior toward them. And uh, it's, it's been going on for years, according to them. Uh, of course, all of this is alleged. Uh, Bill has finally admitted that he probably had some poor boundaries. Yeah. Uh, he has uh, retired early. He's resigned from the Willow Creek, Willow Creek Association and kind of removed himself. But because it's ongoing and uh, so forth and what is true, what is not true, uh, we've decided to put a pause on it like many other significant churches have done uh, because the one thing I don't want us to do is I don't want us to be aligned with the situation where women have been mistreated and belittled, and it appears that's the case. Yeah. How far, how bad it is, we don't know. Um, I just don't want that to be a reputation, and it breaks my heart, it breaks my heart deeply because, because of the impact he has had and Willow has had for so many years on the church. And, you know, people are taking sides in the whole thing, and it's just ugly, and I, and I pray for them, and I pray for Bill. Uh, but for now, I don't want us to be misaligned. I don't want us to go ahead with this, and more comes out, 
And then all of a sudden, you know, people infer because you're doing this, you must feel the same way. So it's time for us to step back and let the truth emerge and pray for, for repentance and pray for forgiveness. It's caused us to look at our own policies and, and ask ourselves, do the women on our staff feel safe? And uh, do women in general at Wooddale feel safe? And we're trying to do our best to make sure that's the environment uh, that we produce because that's what Christ wants. So painful, hard is something for us to pray for. It's a poor witness to the world. It, it upsets me because it's another excuse for the world and for the younger generation to say, see, why should we? And, but like we said, that's the story of the Bible. Right. Broken people. God is the one who's always faithful. Yeah. Don't take your eyes off God. Yeah. That's it. We're all done with those questions. And wasn't this fun? It was fun for me to ask you questions. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <clears throat> good. Dale, would you, uh, would you close yeah. us in prayer? Dear Father, we thank you for loving us. And it's been a hard series, but a good series to bring us back to the truth, Lord, and that's what this is really all about. And strangely enough, Lord, we close those words, um, fear God and obey his commands. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that, particularly in this area of our sexuality. No matter what the world says, no matter how we feel, God, please give us the courage as parents, as singles, as married folks to fear you and to obey your commands. In Christ's name, amen.